0: Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea, live from the bathroom.
1: <laughs> live from the bathroom of an Airbnb in Glassell Park, the most luxurious place to be.
0: Very nice. I'm glad that you are close by. Me too. It's very nice to be in LA. I've really missed it a lot. Yeah, it was fun to see you the other night. And this week, we're listening to an interview that the two of us did, not together in the same space, but on the Zoom with the writer Christina Rivera Garza about her new book, Liliana's Invincible Summer A Sister's Search for Justice.
1: Yeah, I thought this was a very beautiful conversation and really moving. So, Christina's book is about her sister's murder, which happened in in Mexico City in the 90s. And nobody's ever been arrested for it or tried for it. And she only recently sort of started looking into ways in which she might find justice for the death of her sister.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It starts off more on that track. And what I enjoyed so much about the book is it kind of takes a detour and just at some point, really delves into who her sister was and her writing and recollections of her by her friends. And uh, Liliana sounds like such a funny, vivacious, wonderful person. And I really felt like I got a feel for for her reading this book. And so in, in that way, I feel like there's also justice there in transmitting a person's essence when it can no longer be encountered in the world through them. But I really felt like Christina accomplished that in kind of giving us her sister as much as we can have her.
2: Yeah,
1: I agree.
0: Yes, and it was a great conversation. And let's get to it. Let's do it. be speaking with the writer Cristina Rivera Garza today. Cristina Rivera Garza is the author of numerous novels, short story collections, and nonfiction works written in Spanish. Some recent English translations include Grieving, Dispatches from a Wounded Country, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, The Tiger Syndrome, which won the Shirley Jackson Award in 2019, and New and Selected Stories, which was published last year. She is a two-time winner of the Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz Prize and a MacArthur Fellow, among other honors, and she serves as distinguished professor and founder of the Ph.D. program in Creative Writing in Spanish at the University of Houston. She's with us to speak about her latest book, Liliana's Invincible Summer, A Sister's Search for Justice, which she wrote in English. It begins with her experience of searching for the police record of her sister Liliana's murder, which took place in Mexico in 1990 at the hands of an ex-boyfriend when Liliana was 20 years old. But the maze of bureaucracy and indifference Rivera Garza encounters leads her to another kind of archive – that of Liliana's own writing. A mischievous, funny, and exceedingly bright young woman, Liliana wrote frequently in journals and letters, and through them, as well as through the recollections of her many friends, Rivera Garza reclaims her sister's memory. A testament to familial love and the indelible nature of loss, the book also considers the epidemic of femicides in Mexico and the importance of the language and the activism that has emerged around such violence in the three decades since Liliana's death. Thank you so much, Christina, for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Christina, I wonder if we could just start by you telling us a little bit about your family, because so much of this book this book is about the death of your sister. But if you could just give, give a little bit of background on your childhood, and how you grew up with your younger sister and your parents.
2: Yeah, of course. We are a family of the U.S.-Mexico border. I was born on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico border in the city of Matamoros. I come from grandparents who were migrants, people who, at least my paternal grandparents, people who were born In Central Mexico and very early during the 20th century, walked all the way from the plains of Central Mexico to Coahuila, where they found jobs in the coal mining industries. And uh, later on they were part of a very interesting state experiment with cotton production. So eventually in the 1930s, they finally were able to get hold of a piece of land that they could call their own. So I'm telling all these because I also wrote another book called Autobiography of Cotton, where I explored this migrant history of both my paternal and my maternal grandparents. So I was born in an area that for a number of years depended a lot on cotton production. And both my parents were related to that experience. The situation, their history changed in mind with them when my father got um, a fellowship to become a student at a private university in the city of Monterrey, where he became an uh, agronomist. So my sister was born precisely in this industrial city in the north of Mexico, in Monterrey. There was a um, a gap between the two of us, five years of difference between the two of us. So at that age, when you were a kid, that matters. It's just a lot, right? So yeah. we were never in the same school. We had different friends, of course, eventually when we grew up. And yet we were very close to. We used to belong to the same swimming team. And so swimming and swimming pools became highly charged places for both of us. And that's one of the reasons why you have that diver on the cover of this book. It's uh, mm. reminiscent of the intimacy of swim pools, that place of our sisterhood.
0: From the book, I, I get a sense of that closeness between you and also, you know, a similarity in just, although... You recount some of your history when you were in college and after college and like hanging in these anarchist circles. And you also include your sister's writing here from her journals. And I was so blown away by the way that she writes because she just seems so incredibly intelligent and vivacious and not the kind of journal entries that I had as a teenage girl. I mean, she really seems brilliant. And so that is a huge part of the book spoken by her. And then your recollections a little bit about your own life. There's a number of other ingredients searching for the file about her murder. How did you decide to structure this book the way it is structured with all these various, the testimonies of her friends and family? It seems like very carefully put together as opposed to just being a straight narrative. How did you piece it together like that?
2: Wow, that's a huge question and thank you so much for asking that because that goes to the heart of the book. There is this tendency when we face stories involving great violence, specifically gender violence, lethal violence like a femicide, the tendency is that we either turn these stories into numbers or into stereotypes and there are major dangers as a writer when we want to touch upon issues involving lethal violence. We might exaggerate the power of the context. Our characters might become then passive victims with no volition at all. Or on the other hand, there is the danger that violence becomes so spectacular and somehow inexplicable, right? And so I was very aware of these and Other slippery roads that I was facing and how challenging it was to try to convey the history of my sister very much according to the way in which she was telling this story to herself and how she was living. So instead of talking about her or writing about her, my main challenge here was to co-write this story with her to write not about Liliana, but with Liliana. And I was fortunate enough to have found this, what I'm calling the archive that she built of herself. This was a collection of notes and diaries and letters that she very carefully was putting together during the 20 years that she was with us here on Earth. I have told elsewhere that I had tried to write this story several times before. And every time I failed miserably. And I think I failed because I was working mostly within the range of fiction. But when I came across these papers, Liliana's own papers, I knew that I had finally a different way to get into this story. And now I've been thinking about Her papers, not only as a means of getting to some specific information about her life, it's not only a matter of the theme or the topic, but as you said, it's mostly a matter about how she wrote, how she was playing with form, how the vivaciousness that you mentioned, I think that was very clear to me as well, how she was using a very eclectic way of regarding punctuation, marks, for example, repetition, this idea of rhythms. So I have come to think of that as a way in which Liliana left us her own breathing, her breathing patterns. And so the way in which we come to learn about these stories of femicides are usually these suffocating, asphyxiating stories, and just paying attention to the way in which Liliana worked with language allowed me to bring that breath of hers into the story. So bring her body into the story. What I wanted was to follow that breathing as much as I could in such a way that we could find space, find some breathing space together and finding ways of telling this story not according to official predominant, dominant narratives of passionate crimes or in the United States, the narrative of the dead girl story, right? So I wanted to bring that breath, that bout of breath, that Liliana's own way of experiencing her own body and bringing that as a guiding element, a guiding device, not only in my own research process, but also in the way in which the book was finally structured.
0: Yeah, it seems like you start out maybe trying to tell like a more forensic tale, like you're searching for her file. You go on this really long, labyrinthine search for this file over Mexico City and you, you don't get it. It's almost like when you don't get the file, you have to throw that version of the story out the window a little bit. And it opens up to this giant field of who she was and all her life apart from her murder. At the same time, I think it's very hard when we're looking back at someone's archive to take out like the eventual fate, you know, out of our minds and regard it without that in the front of our minds. So I wonder as you're reading her diary entries and her letters and the way she wrote to her love interests or whatever, if you are, if it was hard to block out what eventually happened when you're looking at that material?
2: It was obviously very, very hard. The temptation was always there to editorialize her voice, try to explain to her what had actually happened in a way as a certain urge to prevent her as if she were still alive. Like, no, no, you shouldn't do that. Or the name of that thing that you are going through is this one. It's not that one. I mean, there there was a lot of that in my reading of the material. But there was something that was very important to me at the very beginning of the whole process. I was aware that her belongings were at home. I knew that we had had those boxes forever, for all these 30 years. We were never strong enough to open that until there was no other option. But the point for me was that I opened up the boxes and then I was touching these papers that she had touched before and no one else between her touching of these materials and my placing of my hands on the same papers. So in a way, I was reconnecting materially with her. So no one had placed their hands on these letters and on these notes and notebooks for 30 years. So there was that contact. And to me, that was such a precious moment. I I was not expecting to find this abundance of materials. I was looking for an address book. I wanted to find information about Liliana's friends from back then, from the 1990s. So my aim was actually quite simple. And then I opened the box and then I was just immersed with this series of papers and then realizing I'm touching her. This is what is happening here. You know, all in these 30 years, I'm the first person that is placing her hands on these materials. And, and then my challenge as a writer was that I wanted everybody to go through that experience, through that immersion, through that sensation that she was there and that we were touching her and that there was something akin to a material presence right there, In that room. So that's what I was mostly thinking about when reading these notes. And on the other hand, I was trying to refrain myself from becoming this obnoxious narrator, thinking that I knew more than she did. I was very sure that the protagonist of this story was to be Liliana. I wanted to have a very discreet presence around her. I didn't want to leave her alone by herself in the book either so i needed to negotiate because i wanted to be as vulnerable as she was becoming at that point so I, I had to negotiate with this urge to minimize my role but at the same time knowing that i was making all the decisions in terms of the structuring of the book and what got to be included and what i couldn't include right i was also very aware of the fact that it was not only a matter of aesthetics it was an ethical question I was trying to, after all, to honor her life. And that's perhaps one of the most difficult challenges that we have as human beings in general, but also as writers.
1: I think working from that, from this movement between from the aesthetics to the ethical part of your project, part of it is also political. It's very much a personal story, but you also write about the political realities in which Liliana and you lived but also within what has changed over the past 30 years since her death, femicide becoming an acknowledged crime in Mexico, but also the power of writing and that also being a political project. What did you think about the way that politics might enter into this book when you were writing it? Did you have a sense of sort of where you wanted it to go and what you wanted it to say? Or was it, just sort of a natural kind of progression from really just telling the story?
2: For me to be able to tell this story, I had to be very aware of the role of language, the role that language has played, both in limiting and refraining the story, and also in the potency of that language, of of specific forms of language that actually I think allowed me to tell this story from her perspective and in a different way. And I'm talking essentially about the relevance of a very strong feminist movement that has emerged and developed in Mexico and throughout Latin America in the last two, three decades. I think when when my sister was a victim of, of femicide in 1990, the story was encapsulated was available at that time. It was this story of, uh, it was a love story, right? One in which a man would not take no for an answer. One in which a man would be out of his mind and would commit a crime. Sort of like in a random way, right? Overcome by emotions. And so that story is one that we know very well. It's one that implicitly is blaming the victim and exonerating the perpetrator. And so even if I had wanted to tell this story, and I wanted to tell this story 30 years ago, just writing this story with the language that was triggering the violence and covering up the violence and silencing any other alternative, it was incredibly difficult. So when um, all these uh, years later, I... Of course, I've been following what was happening in Mexico and in Latin America, with, as I said, a very strong, active, dynamic feminist movement. I actually remember quite clearly the first time that I heard the performance by Las Tesis, the Chilean group, Collective Las Tesis, A Rapist in Your Path. They were not saying anything that I didn't know. And yet, the fact that there were all these women all around the globe Getting together to enunciate these words together at the same time, it had such an effect on me. I don't think I was able to phrase it as clearly as I want to say it now. But at that point, I think I understood that I not only had the language, the precise language that I needed to tell this story, but also that there was an audience that could finally listen to this story in the way in which this story deserved to be listened to. And so yes. there is a conjunction of all these elements. I mean, the politics of it is pretty much embedded in the work that all these women's mobilizations have done in producing this language that now I'm able to use to tell Lillian's story in her own way. I'm curious
0: what, with the absence of language 30 years ago when it happened, when it happened, how you understood it at the time. What did you think had happened, basically? What kind of language did you have for it at first?
2: Yeah, it was very complicated. I knew, obviously, that an injustice had been committed. I knew that my sister didn't deserve what had happened. I knew in my heart of hearts, yeah, essentially, that there was an injustice here. The rumor, though... What people were saying around us is like, well, something must have happened there. She must have done something. She was living on her own. Their parents didn't take care of her as they should have. You know the kind of gossiping, the kind of rumors that are usually that you usually hear in these kind of situations. So it was so complicated to have a say in this story because if we wanted to talk about it, it was a way of turning Liliana into putting Liliana into a very vulnerable position too. And so, but if we didn't talk about it, well, her story was not going to be aired, right? So it was an, a no win situation. It was, uh a very complicated situation, but I knew that there was a crime. I knew that there was um, a love story involved. We knew that Liliana had had a a and enough relationship with Ángel González Ramos. And uh, once we got the news about the crime, I was able to put all the dots together. Even before I, I was told what had happened when I was traveling from Houston to Mexico City, I was I remember clearly I was on the plane, wasn't flying, and thinking this is what happened. This is what just happened. And then of course I finally I got the confirmation once we arrived in Mexico City.
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Christina Rivera Garza, author of Liliana's Invincible Summer. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
1: We have Malcolm Harris on the line with us today. Malcolm's latest book is called Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, and Malcolm is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Malcolm, what book are you going to recommend?
3: Today I'm recommending Ma Bole's Second Life by Zhao Hong, which is a Hilarious account of the 20th century?
1: A hilarious account of the 20th century. That's not what I thought you were going to say. Tell me more about this book. (laughs) Yeah.
3: This is a Chinese novel about a guy who's at the edge of society constantly trying to figure out how to make his way from his sort of elite position in society, make it as a slacker at a time of real social urgency. And I think it's a depiction of that time and place that we don't get from a perspective that we don't usually have. And it's a really funny one. It's a very comedic novel that I think people who enjoy 20th century comedic fiction will will find familiar. And at the same time, a history that they maybe don't know from a new perspective. How did you discover this book? It's an open letter publication. It's a great press uh, that puts out wonderful literature and translation. And they sometimes have great sales. So this is one I picked up in an open letter press sale. People should check them out.
1: Would you tell us the title of the book again and the author?
3: It's Mabole's Second Life by Zhao Hong. That's X I A O H O N G.
1: Thanks so much, Malcolm. No problem. We've been speaking with Malcolm Harris. His latest book is called Palo Alto A History of California, Capitalism, and the World.
0: Listening to the LARB Radio Hour, we now return to our conversation with Christina Rivera Garza, author of Liliana's Invincible Summer.
1: You say at a certain point that one of the things that was also stopping you from telling the story is this feeling of shame. As you just mentioned, that there was this implicit suggestion that you had done something wrong, your family had done something wrong, Liliana had done something wrong. and that the shame was kind of holding you back from speaking and that you were sort of guarding her, you were kind of protecting her. When did that feeling start to abate for you? You know, when you start looking for the file, it almost seems sort of instant, like suddenly you are, you feel dedicated to seeing this through and you finally go look at the boxes that have been untouched for 30 years. I wonder what brought you to that point When you felt the shame slip away, when you felt, I am ready, I'm ready
2: to do this. It's just so interesting. You just know that you're sure sure once you get the whole process rolling. There's a confluence of things happening right here. In 2020, when uh, I went to Toluca and looking for that address book that I mentioned before, we didn't know that the pandemic was coming. This was very early in January. Once it came, I was, as a lot of people, I was very afraid of dying. I mean, I'm in that age group. And I thought, if this is going to happen, if I'm going to fall here, if I'm going to die, there is something that I need to do before dying. So I don't want to go without writing this book. And I knew there was a huge responsibility in that sense. On the other hand, when I began trying to reopen the legal case, I tell this part of the story in the book, a clerk in the attorney's, general attorney's office hinted at the fact that her Fight, that Liliana's police case, might not exist anymore, might have not existed anymore. And that was another breakthrough. I was thinking, well, that means that if my parents die, if I die, that means that there is not going to be any kind of institutional trace of Liliana's life on earth. Who is going to be remembering her? and that really scared me so the feelings of guilt and shame i think those are very hard to deal with and i still entertain traces of that i cannot tell you sincerely that i'm guiltless and that i feel just that i'm absolutely you know healed From the whole process, I think there's a lot of work to be done still. But what I knew during those months when I began this whole process is that either I did this or no one was going to remember Liliana. And just the idea that that could happen was so immense And so scary and so unjust that whatever hesitation I had had in the past, I didn't pay attention to it. It's not that it didn't exist anymore. It's just that I just um, plunged forward and I said, this is it. I mean, I don't know how many more days I'm going to be here on earth, but this is something that I will be doing.
0: It's really beautiful that just had to do it. I mean, there was no, because I was also going to ask, you kind of referenced the waiting too long, or the sense that if you would have looked for the file earlier, perhaps you could have found it, but then you didn't. And I was wondering yeah, like the 30 years of waiting, why? Why had you waited? But it just takes time, I guess.
2: But it's not only personal time. That's the other interesting thing. Each person has to go through her own mourning process, right? And that's very, very personal. But on the other hand, I think it's a time that we as a society required or had to use to produce the language. It was not just idly waiting for something to happen. Language doesn't just land on us, right? There are speakers and communities struggling to make themselves heard. And in order to do that, you have to coin new words and you have to clean words and you have to go through some of those. You have to turn them around. You have to work with language as such. And I think it took us 30 years as a society, and I'm not only talking about Mexican society, I think as communities, as human communities here on earth, That's the time that it took for us, or for me in this case, to be able to tap into that language. They had been grown on streets, on the rooms of justice, on domestic um, spaces and public spaces too.
0: I'm wondering how this seems like such a formative, inescapable experience to have at a young age and the way, even if you were not telling it explicitly kind of how it arrived in in your fiction and other work, or if you can see the way it kind of filtered into your other writing?
2: Oh, absolutely. That's a really good question too. Well, now looking at it from the point of view of the present, I can see how I was struggling and training myself and learning how to tell this story. I did work for a number of years, mostly in fiction. And about 10 years ago, I started to do more cross-genre work. I'm a historian by training, so I, I brought much of that experience of the historian exploring archives, looking at old documents and trying to build plots, narrative lines. I brought much of that experience into my writing. And um, in the last also five, ten years I began writing and talking a lot about something that I've been calling disappropriation. Essentially a way of writing in which the presence of other writings, the presence of other voices, are made visible and almost palpable. And so now Having written Liliana's Invisible Summer, I'm thinking, of course. I mean, I could not have written this book without having gone through all that. My frustration with fiction, my series of experimentations with cross-genre, the need to open up spaces to have, to host, to embrace the material presence of those that I was writing about, either human or not human. So I think I was training myself. I was learning the trade of this book. But of course, I'm I'm saying this from the vantage point of the present. So we have to take it with a grain of salt.
1: I found that moments in this book when you mention yourself, there's a very, very small, small moment where you write, I traveled with a boy that I thought I loved. And I found myself fearing for you and your safety suddenly. And I wonder... How your relationship to your sister's death affected your understanding of your own safety in this world, of your own relationship to men, because I can't imagine that, that it didn't have a huge effect on you.
2: But what I can tell you is that we were brought up in a household that appreciated and fostered freedom. My family is a traditional middle-class family, if you want to look at it that way. My father had a job, my mom was a stayed-at-home mom, yet we were told from a very young age just to, we were encouraged to follow our dreams, to fight for what we believed and, uh, and to really have a sense of appreciation for our own autonomy. And so I still remember now traveling on my own. When I was uh, very young when I was a, a university student, you know, doing autostop in Mexico, in southern Mexico, something that the women in Mexico would have never do now. So a sense of um, the freedom and adventure, and just uh, risk taking in a way. Well, obviously the situation was transformed radically and sadly it was not only a personal transformation i think the whole country young women had to learn to to protect themselves and quite often that meant to limit their freedom to avoid specific spaces, uh, specific times, not to walk at night, not to walk on this side of the city, not to walk even, right? So obviously, the fact that I personally went through this experience and that, that we as a country in Mexico, but not only Mexico, in other countries as well, have gone through these tremendously traumatic experiences, of course, they have very concrete consequences in the way that we behave, in the way in which we inhabit public and private space, and in the way in which we relinquish, we're forced to relinquish freedoms that other bodies might enjoy, but not female bodies. Yeah, there's a lot of that, sadly.
0: It sounds like you were already skeptical about love before what happened to your sister. You know, you write about. Thinking it was a way of derailing people's promise and you just kind of look down on the whole like love and boys and all that.
2: Not very optimistic, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I actually realized that um, I've written, I wrote, I published my first book, the only book that I wrote, While My Sister Was Alive. I was rereading that, that book precisely when I was writing Liliana's Invisible Summer, just to have a sense of uh, context. And I was struck by what you just said. I mean, there is a, a suspiciousness, a radical suspiciousness about the benefits of love. And in fact, a continuous indictment and criticism, radical criticism of, of what love meant specifically for women. So I. I was not, you know, programmatic in that search. It was not part of a political propaganda in any case. But it's certainly at the very heart of the short stories that I was writing back then. So what I, the way in which I explain that to myself now is that my body, my consciousness, of course, was alert. There were all these contrasting messages about love stories that were supposed to be wonderful, good for you, somehow part of your destiny, and concrete stories that I was looking at, even before my my sister was killed, stories that, that I just was witness to, in which um, the culprit was love. I mean, love was not a safe heaven. It was pretty much, The Guilty Party. So I was very willing to consider that as a possibility. And all those stories, we just uh, did a, a new edition of the book that back then was called War Doesn't Matter. And now we reprinted a new edition last year, and the new title is We Go Like Bitches, We Go Like She-Devils. So just to be you know, very close to the topics and the matter that I was analyzing. Since the
0: book is so much about Liliana, I feel like we haven't talked quite enough about her yet as who she was as a person and just what she was like. And as I said, she seemed like she was exceptional, exceptionally bright, exceptionally empathetic and sympathetic with her friends. I mean, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about her as a person.
2: That was very interesting to me, too, because obviously I knew Liliana as my sister, and as my younger sister as such. But I was not, I was never sharing a classroom with her. I was not her best friend in the university. I was not a guy in love with her. So there were many Lilianas that I didn't know. And doing the research for this book actually allowed me to get to know her better, to get to know the many Lilianas that she contained. We mentioned earlier how much she wrote during those years, I was not aware of that, for example. I thought she was studying architecture. She always had um, an interest for the visual arts. And I knew she was reading because I would lend her books and we would talk about books. But I didn't know. I was not as aware about how much she was reading. And I certainly didn't know that she was writing as much as she was. When I wrote in the book that back then she was a true writer in the family, I say it with no false modesty, right? I mean, I, she was writing way more than I was at that point. I was studying sociology and I was... Uh, I was becoming kind of an activist, too. And I was reading a lot, but not writing as much as Liliana was, was writing. So the kind of dedication, the kind of discipline that she had, just writing letters and then rewriting them, retyping them, that kind of uh, care was news to me. And I was very happy just to see that. And as I've said, she was obviously using letters and notes to express herself. But at the same time, it seems to me that she was very aware of language as a medium, as a way not only of expressing herself, but a way to produce something else, a different relationship with the people that she was writing to, but also a different relationship to herself because uh, she was referring to herself and talking to herself at times in the third person while writing. So there were many of those endearing moments. And one specifically that I was very happy to have come across was her sense of humor. Everybody talked about how quick-witted she was, how snarky she could be at times, just how quick-minded. And easy laughter, right? And so just knowing that she was enjoying life, that she was able to do that, to create close connections with friends, to create this community around her, that actually made me very happy during the process of the research.
1: There's a beautiful moment in the book where you write about how grieving is never being lonely. I think that's how you phrase it. And that there's moments when you feel that Liliana is very much interacting with you Can you tell us what the last time was that you felt this kind of interaction, that you felt her kind of
2: reaching out? It happens all the time in very different ways. And as you can imagine, these, uh, well, today is a publication day of the book, right? So today has been an emotionally charged day, just to put it mildly. But just walking around, looking at the sunlight, uh, thinking about the things that we could be conversing and sharing that's really important and um, for a number of years I thought that everybody had this private sister everybody had this private presence that they could go back to obviously that's not necessarily the case and that's the reason why I wrote and that I since Liliana has been always with me discussing things I've been trying to look at the world through her eyes trying to see what would. What could she do? Would she make the same decision given these these situations that I was going through, for example? So that constant company, that sense of (laughs) accompaniment, it's been very closely related to the sorrow and to the loss too. So it's not easy to explain. It's quite paradoxical. But yeah, we're not lonely in that sense.
0: I really related to that sentiment. I thought it was... Very moving. The trial for her death, I guess I was a little unclear about what happened after her murder. It seems like her killer was never brought to justice. And But you don't harp on that in the book so much. But do you think the loss of your sister has been a different type of loss? Because it's also coupled with the fact that the person who killed her didn't have— punishment.
2: That's a tough one too. You're asking me about the law. The law has changed. Now we have the figure of femicide, which doesn't mean that Mexican society or any other societies are more effectively going after these criminals, right? We now have in Mexico City a specific fiscalia for feminicidios, right? And yet the number of femicides is on the rise too. So there are things that are not working here, clearly. And, and impunity has been a, a, such a crucial issue in keeping femicides, the number of femicides growing. Men know they can get away with it. It's very, very possible, very probable, in fact, that nothing will happen to them after committing these kinds of crimes. And so in the case of Liliana, I think there was a combination of of all those things, impunity, corruption, indifference in terms of, you know, the Mexican state as such, our own disorientation, our own sense as a family of guilt and shame, as I mentioned it before. And the fact that Ángel González Ramos remained at large for all these years. I have come to learn later, though, that he might have lived under an alias in Southern California for all these years. And uh, it is possible, at least I had some information leading me to believe that he, in fact, died on uh, May the 2nd of 2020, drowned, by the way, in Southern California. I shared all this information with the police in Mexico, and this happened, I don't know, a year and a half ago. I have not received any kind of confirmation. There is this just total disrespect and this total indolence for uh, women's suffering. So that's where, where the situation is at right now. You know, while I
1: was reading this, I couldn't help thinking about other books that I'd read that deal with femicide and the one that really kept coming up a lot was 2666 by balagno and i wonder because so much of this book is a way of correcting a record of creating a record of building an archive of making archive public i wonder what you think about the literature that has come before and whether this book is also a corrective to the kind of literature that we've had thus far
2: Yeah, wonderful question. Of course, because a book like this is not, it doesn't exist in isolation. There is a conversation, a growing conversation and growing concern about these kinds of crimes. And of course, I I think uh, Roberto Bolaño's masterful 2666 opened up a path into this evil, as he called it. And before them, I was writing not long ago about the books that journalist Sergio González Rodriguez wrote in Mexico. Some sections of his work were translated into English and published by Semiotext, if I'm not mistaken, The Femicide Machine. And I think that's also very important. More recently, what we are seeing is this plethora of, of really interesting works mostly by women, about gender violence and um, major authors come to mind, like Selva Almada. I'm not so sure if her book, Chicas Muertas, is being translated into English now, but some of her works, and all of them are magnificent, are in English translation, are available in English translation now. But then there is a work of Dolores Reyes and the work of Brenda Navarro, And so there is a growing exploration using a range of aesthetic devices trying to to provide, yeah, perhaps a correction, perhaps just how many more ways of going through this experience and looking at this experience, were there and are there now? And I think that that allows us um, a critical view of our moment and uh, sadly, Our moment is, I think, is characterized by two major tragedies. One of them is related to immigration, and the other one is what Rita Segato has called this war on women. Femicide is just the most lethal way of a a serious range of violence against women that unfortunately have become naturalized. And I hope that all these works, mine included, might be compelling enough to invite us to think in different ways about the suffering of women, about the suffering of others, and about the responsibility that we have in building a different world, different communities, different loves, as Liliana would say, as Liliana said.
0: Thank you so much, Christina, for speaking with us. That was really, really amazing.
2: Thank you. No, thank you for your interest and thank you for your questions, too.
0: That was Christina Rivera Garza. Her new book is called Liliana's Invincible Summer. Thanks for listening to The LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at The LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden.